Welcome to Talking Poverty, the poverty-free action team's podcast, taking a critical look at income security issues in British Columbia. On this episode, we're talking with Heather McCain, Executive Director of Citizens for Accessible Neighborhoods, or CAN for short. She is also the co-author of a new report entitled Sharing Our Realities, Life on Disability Assistance in British Columbia. Hi, Heather. Hi. So can you tell us a little bit about Citizens for Accessible Neighborhoods? Sure. Citizens for Accessible Neighborhoods was started in 2005. Um, I started it because of my own experiences as a person with a disability. At the time, I was using a power wheelchair, and I lived in Maple Ridge. Where I lived, the bus came once an hour. And unfortunately, we had bus drivers who would say that the ramp was not operating because they did not want to take the time uh, to have the ramp be deployed, uh, and which meant that my entire day would then be shot. Uh, and unfortunately, it happened enough that I contacted TransLink and I was not getting a response. I mentioned this at a chronic pain support group that I ran, and they said, you know, I bet they'd respond if you were an organization. And so I thought about this a bit, and I decided to start an organization. Uh, and when I sent uh, the same email to TransLink as executive director of Citizens for Accessible Neighborhoods, I received an immediate response. And I've been a consultant on and off for them uh, since we started in 2005. And so that's how it started. It was from my own personal experiences as someone with a disability, seeing my experiences reflected in other people's experiences and uh, wanting to fix one issue. But once that issue had been resolved, having a lot of people come to me with other accessibility issues as well. That's great. So what does CAN do and whom does it support? CAN helps anybody who has a disability as well as those who are in their support system. That could be staff, that could be family, that could be friends. And one of the core principles of CAN is giving people the power to be able to make their own decisions about what works for them and how best to help themselves. The other thing that we really want to focus on is not being disability specific. So there are a lot of disabilities out there. Oftentimes when people think of disability, they think of physical disability alone. Um, and oftentimes that's because the international symbol for accessibility is a person in a wheelchair uh, and mobility device disabilities are visible. So they're the easiest to spot. They're the easiest to see out and about in the communities. Whereas things like mental health, cognitive disabilities, developmental disabilities, these are not easy to see. And there are a lot of people with invisible disabilities, and it can be cancer or arthritis, back problems, um, you know, surgeries. There's so many different things that are not uh, visible to the eye. And, uh, you know, that's also something that we also like to cover is talking about invisible disabilities. Invisible disabilities, unfortunately, are often not thought of. And it's hard from a customer service or a business organization to understand how they can help people with disabilities when they can't actually spot the people with disabilities. And so we do disability awareness seminars and we do accessibility audits and we try to make organizations and businesses and community programs understand how they can be open to people of all disabilities. What does an accessible neighborhood look like? Specifically, what is CAN's vision of an accessible neighborhood? It's a very, it would be a very long answer uh, to, to a short question, but essentially an accessible neighborhood is one where every person in that community can fully participate. 
Uh, and currently we have so many barriers to community participation. Transportation is a huge one. Um, you know, we have, I think most people are aware of the issues within Metro Vancouver, but as you go further north in BC, the transportation issues, especially for people who need adaptions, such as being physically accessible, it becomes even harder. Uh, there's issues with the snow in the winter. There's issues with uh, some communities that don't have handy dart, that don't have bus transportation. Um, and unfortunately, having a wheelchair accessible van is very expensive and not available to everybody. So transportation is probably one of the biggest. Uh, housing is also up there. Uh, oftentimes, housing will be accessible in certain areas, but not other areas. So the unit itself may be accessible to someone, say, with a mobility device, but the sidewalks and the curb cuts are not accessible outside. So they can stay in their unit, but they can't leave the building. Or it could be the other way around, where the community is accessible, but the unit is not. And that's physical accessibility. On the other hand, is something that we've termed attitudinal accessibility, which is a customer services approach to people with disabilities. Unfortunately, because there are very well-intentioned people who don't want to say the wrong thing, often they don't say anything at all to people who have disabilities, and they don't know how to serve, how to help. Um, we run disability awareness seminars, and we had one librarian who came up to me afterwards and said, thank you, I no longer feel the need to run and hide when I see a person with a disability. And that did not come from a place of not wanting to help. It came from a place of not wanting to see, say the wrong thing. So we really see an accessible neighborhood as a place where people can go out in their community and they can have people see them as the people they are and not as the disability that may scare them or may make them nervous about what's right and what's wrong to say. Disability is really no different than gender or, you know, age, sex, um, nationality is just a part of the person. And so an accessible neighborhood would be one where people are welcomed, where adaptions are made if necessary. Um, a lot of the disabilities, the majority of disabilities are invisible. And so this is difficult for people to understand what they can do. Um, and again, that goes back to the attitudinal accessibility. It's about understanding, do they have things, for example, like um, multiple formats for people who have visual impairments? Do they have Braille? Do they have large font for people who are seniors? Um, there are different adaptions that can be made. And um, I think one of the biggest things of an accessible neighborhood is a neighborhood or a community that engages people with disabilities. Oftentimes, communities try to guess what people with disabilities need. And there is a phrase, nothing about us without us. Um, and CAN is very much uh, can very much believes in that because people with disabilities should be the one who are guiding how we make our neighborhoods accessible. It's well-meaning, able-bodied people who are making guesses who unfortunately spend the funds that are available to make adaptions that aren't actually helpful to anyone. And so we really need to engage people with disabilities. And so there's a role for a greater consultation uh, for persons with disabilities. Absolutely. And not just consultation, but actual implementation. Because as a person with a disability and as the executive director of an organization for people with disabilities, I can tell you there is a lot of consultation. But unfortunately, a lot of the consultation is a check in a box. It's did we consult with people with disabilities? Yes. 
the question is, are you going to listen to people with disabilities? Are you going to implement what they say is needed? Are you going to work with them uh, to improve things? Consultation is great, but that is a first step, and we need to make sure that it's followed through all the way. Just looking at some of the statistics uh, for persons with disabilities. So according to the disability consultation report that was issued by the province of BC in 2014, there are about 550,000 people in BC who identify as having a disability, which represents about 15% of British Columbians over the age of 15. According to the Participation and Activity Limitation Survey of 2006, 161,000 of these persons with disabilities had an annual gross income less than $12,000. So a lot of poverty within that population as well. Absolutely. Um, and to a certain extent, enforced poverty. Not only is the government funding way below the poverty line, but also there are a lot of people with disabilities who could work if they were given the proper supports. And unfortunately, it's often not available. So we have people who are living way below the poverty line who don't have to be. And I can tell you that is a very frustrating situation to find yourself in. So for our main topic today, we'd like to discuss the new report, Sharing Our Realities, Life on Disability Assistance in British Columbia, written in collaboration with the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. The report provides the results of a survey conducted with people on disability assistance or intending to access it, as well as Ministry of Social Development and Social Innovation workers. It's a disturbing look at what both people on the inside and the outside of the system see as keeping people with disabilities in poverty. So can you provide some context for the report and, you know, why you thought it was necessary? Sure. Well, last year there were some changes to the disability rates. Uh, including a change to the bus pass program and the special transportation subsidy. The bus pass program was uh, people on disability could pay $45 a year and get a bus pass. And this was changed to uh, $52 a month, which was nearly a 1,400% jump. Um, this felt very personal for people with disabilities because the seniors retained their $45 a year bus pass, whereas it was just aimed at people with disabilities. Um, also, people who had the special transportation subsidy, which is for people who are unable to use the transit system, they would get uh, lump sum payments two or three times a year uh, in order to help with car maintenance and gas, uh, became monthly payments as well. So while the government gave a $77 increase, immediately they clawed back $45 for those who wanted the bus pass and $52 for those who wanted to maintain this tra special transportation subsidy. And people had been fighting for a rate increase for a very long time, advocates, organizations, people with disabilities. So to have a rate increase and at the same time to have a lot of people have to make that decision of whether they were going to pay for medication, housing, food, uh, childcare, clothing, or transportation, which is a major component of living a life. Um, it was a very, very difficult decision and a burden, and people really felt like the government was not listening to them. It was not understanding where they were coming from or what the pressures of their lives were. Uh, and so our organization was contacted by a lot of people who were just, they were depressed and they didn't believe that the government was ever going to listen to them uh, and that they did not have a voice in this province. And of course, Citizens for Accessible Neighborhoods was founded on the idea that people with disabilities do have a voice um, and that we will help people use that voice to be heard. So we decided to do a survey online and it was also available 
on paper and if people wanted to phone in instead of typing out responses that was available as well and let us know what was it like to actually live on disability live under the poverty line and have to make these decisions about keeping a bus pass or keeping this special transportation subsidy truthfully we heard from a lot of people who said we think it's a great idea we're not going to participate because we don't think people are listening anymore but then we also had quite a few people who said you know what we trust citizens for accessible neighborhoods and we will answer these and uh, i have to say we were very impressed by just how honest people were they really did open up quite a bit and really explain what their day-to-day life was living under the poverty line. Um, And so this report is giving voice to people who do not feel they have a voice and who see the government making decisions that don't actually reflect the realities of their own life. So Heather, there is within Sharing Our Realities a mention of a key report issued in 2014 by the BC government called the Disability Consultation Report. Could you, A, tell us what it is, and B, tell us whether sharing our realities is a response to that initial report? Sure. The Disability Consultation Report was a white paper uh, that was done throughout the province of BC. The BC government decided that they wanted to be the most progressive province for people with disabilities in all of Canada, Uh, and the white paper was going to be a tool for them to use in order to work towards that goal. They went throughout BC and had consultation meetings and people could go online or they could go to the meetings and they could answer the question as to how to make BC the most progressive province. They had over 7,500 comments, ideas and suggestions submitted and the report was written and released. Um, There were a couple of the suggestions that were taken from the government and implemented, um, but the main ideas which were raising the rates and uh, and actually one of the ideas was to expand the bus pass program um, were not paid attention to and so our report is not so much a response to it but a reminder of the information they asked for from people with disabilities from disability organizations from disability advocates which they have in their own paper um, and which repeats what has been repeated in many papers prior to that white paper and which need to be done in this province, not only to make it the most progressive province, but just to bring it up to where people with disabilities in BC deserve to have um, their funding, to have support, to be able to actually live their life in a way that um, enables them to join their community, to not be constantly living under the weight of living in poverty, um, and hopefully working with them so that they can not only see themselves reflected in their community, but also so that they can do what they can to become employed, find volunteering, do whatever they need in order to create a full life for themselves. So in the report from the survey responses, um, you identified seven themes. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the themes that you uncovered from people filling out the survey? Sure. The very first theme was dignity. The majority of people who responded to our survey, including the income assistant workers themselves, said the system does not allow for dignity. Um, We have people who feel beholden to the government uh, and feel that the government does not respect them, does not actually want to be helping them. 
disability is supposed to be a social safety net. You may not have a disability right now, but at any time you may discover that you do have a disability and you need a social safety net. And disability should be a program that helps you find your way through that. Currently, the system is working against people with disabilities. Uh, just calling in to talk to people, to talk to income assistant workers. Uh, often it's a 45 minute wait to talk to someone. A lot of people on disability do not have more than two hours of minutes for the entire month because of the amount of money they get each month. Some don't even have access to a phone unless pay phones and those are rapidly disappearing. You no longer have assigned workers, so you're talking to random people who don't know you, who don't know your history, who don't know what you're working towards. And so you're talking to people who just see information on a screen in front of them and don't actually see the person. And so we heard again and again that we need to bring dignity back to the program. And as someone who has been on disability for 20 years, I can tell you that when I started, there was dignity. Um, the system did have it. And so that's why so many of us know that we can go back to it. We are going backwards and that needs to be improved. Accessing the persons with disabilities designation is very difficult. The paperwork has increased quite a bit. Uh, the form at one point was three pages and I believe now it's up over 30. A lot of the information is found online only. A lot of people with disabilities do not have access to computers, again, because of the limited amount of money that they have or they do not have computer skills. Uh, not everyone has access to a library that has computers for them to use because they don't have transportation that can get them there. Um, again, if they phone with a question, they have such a long wait. And then because they don't have a individual social worker that they can trust, they're not even sure whether the answer is correct or not. So they may phone two or three more times to hear from other random social workers whether that answer is correct or not. Um, and so this is a huge problem. It really makes people feel like the system does not want you to get the disability designation. Um, the majority of people we heard from are rejected their first time. The people who actually look at the forms do not have any medical knowledge. They're given essentially a checklist of words to look for. And uh, unfortunately, if you use a word like tired instead of fatigued, you may not get a check. And so this is a huge problem in that um, you can complete your form and you can have all the, the letters from your doctors confirming that you have this disability, that you can no longer go to work. And you still have to fight for years to try and get on it. And during that time, people are existing either on welfare, which is $610 a month, or on the kindness of family and friends, which unfortunately can get old quite fast um, and may end relationships and is instable as a way to live. Um, and so getting on disability is increasingly hard, especially as the government moves more and more towards technology, which is not something that is accessible to people with disabilities or people living under the poverty line. I spoke with one fellow who has, he is nonverbal, so he has cerebral palsy and he is nonverbal, and he has a communication board. So it's very much like Stephen Hawking. I think most people can imagine what his voice sounds like. It's mechanical. And when he phones um, the ministry, the automated response from the ministry hears the mechanical voice, thinks it's a machine, and can ha hang up on him. But if he gets someone 
to, if he gets a family member or a friend to phone the ministry uh, in his place, the social worker may hang up on him because you're not actually allowed to have somebody else in on the conversation. It's confidential. And unless you have given your rights over to that person, they cannot speak for you or even get through that first part. Um, and so he has troubles just getting someone to answer the call. Uh, and this is not being addressed. Or there's people who are deaf, who are unable to use the phones uh, and have troubles with the technology. So the move to technology really limits access to the system. Absolutely. Uh, technology can work and it, it can create some shortcuts, but it cannot be the only option. Ministry offices are closing down and the reliance on technology is growing. And as I say, for people who live under the poverty line, who do not have money for phones and computers, and for people with disabilities who have complex um, issues that may not allow them to be able to use computers, this is not a system that works for all. Um, accessible infrastructure is very much talked about when it comes to people with disabilities. And I think a lot of the communities know about this and are working towards this. And that was a big theme that we heard in that uh, people do not feel that they can access all of their community. And that is a problem. Uh, we also heard that we significantly need to raise the income and disability assistant rates. We're currently more than $500 away from the poverty line. So when I say people are living under the poverty line, I mean they're living two-thirds of the way to the poverty line. They're, they're living off $1,000 a month. Um, and uh, unfortunately, even with an increase last year and a $50 increase this year, um, most people aren't receiving more than $1,083. And that's if you do not accept the special transportation subsidy or the bus pass. The other big problem is shelter rates. Uh, we're given $375 for shelter rates. Most people have to use another portion of their check in order to find housing. And so of that um, $1,000, $600 can go to housing alone. And $400 is what they have to live on for medications, for therapies, for transportation, for food. Um, and uh, unfortunately, what this is doing for people with disabilities is creating great stress on their disabilities. And unfortunately, stress can make disabilities worse. Um, and this is why this is not an issue that should just be paid attention to for people with disabilities. This is an issue for all British Columbians because our healthcare system is having costs added to it that don't need to be there. We have people who cannot afford to eat nutritiously and they are getting diabetes, which is then a lifelong issue for the taxpayers as they have to pay that health care. We have people with diabetes who are not getting appropriate care and then getting a limb amputated as opposed to having the monthly care that they need. We have people with mental health issues who are being hospitalized long term because they are not getting the support that they need out in the community. Um, we've heard from quite a few people with mental health issues who are suicidal, who feel like the government is almost hoping that that happens um, because it's less people within the system. Um, and they're going in to be hospitalized is costing taxpayers. And so it would cost taxpayers less to have a more preventative upstream approach um, Absolutely. through raising the rates. Exactly. Raised rates would improve people's ability to eat nutritiously, access food, 
access their medications. We have people who have severe disabilities or mental health issues who can't afford medications. Um, there is no hope of getting better for some people unless they have this. Uh, personally, I require orthotics uh, on a very regular basis, which the government will not cover. And so for a period of 10 years, I required a power wheelchair. The government ended up paying over $15,000 for a power wheelchair when if they had paid $500 every two years for my orthotics, I would not have needed the wheelchair. And this is the sort of example that shows that we need to have the upstream approach. We need to be preventative. We need to look at what people's needs are, the individual needs, and address those in order to save. Can you tell us a little bit about the experiences of workers within the system and how they perceive uh, the problems with it? What we heard from the income assistant workers was that they felt that the system was very demoralizing as well for them. It They did not find joy in their job. They did not feel like they were helping people. They felt like they were dealing with frustrated people all day. Um, they felt like they were trapped and they felt like they did not have a voice. They did not have an avenue in which they could talk to the government in order to try and gain improvements. They felt like a lot of these uh, this technology has been pushed on them uh, and that it's moved away from being a service for people. What we found striking in the report was the similarities between the people with disabilities and the income assistant workers. Comments uh, matched up almost you know, completely. We heard again and again the same stories, the same experiences. Um, and we could see how demoralizing it was for both sides. We also heard from the workers that the system was making the people with disabilities sicker. It's making them more stressed. Um, it was causing depression, uh, situational depression, depression that does not have to happen, but the system is forcing on people. It was causing people to become suicidal. They could see how their clients were getting worse, and they felt like they had no power in being able to help. I have a just a question that came to mind. Um, in one of the themes, um, there's a discussion of accountability that the government lacks. Could you speak to how will the presence of individual social workers alleviate that lack of accountability that is currently there within the system? This was something that the majority of the social workers mentioned. Currently, the social workers now answer the phone randomly. So if it rings and they're available, they answer. Um, they then have to scan through all the notes from the previous discussions to get up to date on what is going on with this person while this person wants to get right to the conversation, usually because they've been waiting for 45 minutes or longer. And then what happens, unfortunately, is that if the social worker is having a problem, they can hang up on that person, and then it is the next social worker's problem. And because there is no individual worker, what happens is if there is an issue with a client, it can be passed off on many different social workers who have dealt with that client. Whereas when there's an individual caseworker, that is the person who's responsible for that person. If a problem pops up, then they're the ones who have to deal with it. And we heard from the assistant workers that that's also how they learned how to do their job. They learned how to fix mistakes. They learned how to approach clients. And without having to deal with those issues, they didn't learn. They weren't able to grow as um, ministry workers. 
Right, so there's actually no continuity of care. And so what can ministry workers do then to advocate to the government? What we're hearing from the majority of income assistant workers is that they felt they had no avenue in which to advocate for themselves. What we heard from them is that they have been threatened with being fired if they speak out and that they do know colleagues who have been fired for speaking out. And this is a big issue. Income assistant workers should feel like they have an avenue in which to explain the frustrations of their job. They should be able to talk about how to improve the system. Um, and currently what we have is we have two out of three sides who want to improve the system, who know how to improve the system, and who want to work together, and that are people with disabilities and income assistant workers. What we now need is that third side, the government, to come on board and say, we will consult with both groups, we will work together, and we will move forward. We were also told by income assistant workers that 15 years ago, part of the interview process was an empathy test in order to ensure that they knew how to interact with people with disabilities and their clients. We were told that now the main component for being hired is, can you work the computer system? And this is a big change in the system, is we've moved away from that personal interaction to technology. And the people who do the job now are very different from the people who used to do it when it was an individual caseload. We still have some of those people who are who are in the system, who are frustrated by what they see in the system, but we also have a lot of new people who are strictly there because they know how to work the technology. And it's unfair to both sides. They are untrained in how to interact with people with disabilities, people who are highly stressed, people who might have mental health issues, people who have lost their housing or can't afford to eat. And so interactions can often go badly because they don't have the appropriate training. Whereas previously, we used to look at this as a personal interaction, as people with disabilities, and I want to repeat that, people with disabilities in the system. Right now, it's run like a system, and they've left the people behind. So, Heather... In discussing the need for increased disability rates in BC with others, how can one respond to the statement that the province can't afford to raise rates? Well, first of all, I would say the province can't afford not to raise the rates. Um, just the healthcare costs alone um, would save BC quite a bit of money. If we gave people higher rates, we would prevent a lot of the medical costs that are being put on taxpayers across BC. While the government is looking at this as trying to come up with money, what we're saying is you could save money. There's money that is already being spent within the system that could be reduced if you moved it from one area to the other. Several key recommendations have been made in sharing our realities to improve the quality of life for members of the community with disabilities. As the conditions are desperate for so many people, which of these recommendations would have the most impact? I think one of the first is to simplify the application process for both income and disability assistance, um, as well as provide more support throughout the application process itself. I really think there needs to be an increased health care coverage, including physical, mental, and emotional care. So, for example, physiotherapy, massage, um, counseling was one that we heard from a lot of people uh, we had a lot of people with mental health issues who said if they had counseling, they wouldn't need as much medications or they wouldn't be hospitalized as much. 
Um, and so again, this is a cost saving by putting money up front. We're actually saving more money uh, later on. I think one of the biggest things is to implement a poverty reduction plan. I think that a lot of the issues that affect people who live in poverty affect people with disabilities. BC is the only province that does not have a poverty reduction plan, uh, and this is one step that forward that would really make a big difference. So, Heather, we have spoken at length on the financial incentives of improving our current system. I want to go back and return to the social incentives of improving the system, especially in relation to the theme of dignity. Could you speak to how the removal of inequities and indignities will create a more just society, especially in keeping with the thought that the opposite of poverty is not wealth but justice? People on disabilities on a daily basis feel prejudiced against. They feel that people look down on them. They feel like the province is treating them as lesser than. Um, we have productive people in our society who have stresses that are preventing them from leading full lives. It is a daily struggle for people who live in poverty to have to deal with this. It is a burden that causes stress, that causes health issues. Um, if we were to alleviate some poverty, if we were to show that we value these people, that we see them as members of our society, then they would be more invested within the community. They would see themselves reflected in the community. They would feel better about themselves. We have a minister of social development and social innovation who herself said she was ashamed to be on disability, which is very unfortunate because it sends out that sign that being on disability is shameful. It is not. We have people in our province who have disabilities, who have experienced something in life that not everyone else has, but who are members of our community, who need to be looked after, who need to be supported, and who need to have available programs and supports until they can get to the next stage in their life. People with disabilities are very well aware that those without disabilities often do not understand what our lives are like. But we also understand that at any moment, anyone can become disabled. Personally, I have an acquired disability, which means that at 17, all of a sudden, I started developing chronic pain and health conditions. You may not need to use the system currently, but I can tell you that when you do need to use the system, you will want it to be improved from where it is now. We have people who are situationally depressed because not only is the system not providing for them, but we have the minister of it saying you should be ashamed to be on it. We have the government treating you like you are dirt on its shoe and it just wants to get rid of you. We have people who are playing political <coughs> football with you and you are an object as opposed to a person. People with disabilities do not feel heard, they do not feel seen, and they do not feel respected. And so we very much need to improve the system, to improve the dignity of the system, to improve how we see people with disabilities, because they are members of our community, and anybody at any time may need this system. That's wonderful. Thank That's you. great. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us, Heather. It's Thank been you lovely. for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Talking Poverty Podcast. We're this month's hosts. I'm Brian Clifford. And I'm Suzanne Merchant. 
Today, we interviewed Heather McCain, the Executive Director of Citizens for Accessible Neighborhoods. To learn more about Citizens for Accessible Neighborhoods, you can visit their website at canbc.org. The report sharing our realities is available online at bcpovertyreduction.ca slash disability. The Talking Poverty podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. Thanks again for listening.